Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This episode was prompted by a listener, Paul, who wrote in to request it. But it's also a subject I'd been pondering on for a while. But, as you'll tell from the beginning of this conversation, it's not an easy one to have. Today I talk once again to Dr Jo Stubley. Jo is a consultant psychiatrist in psychotherapy and she leads the adult section of the trauma service at the NHS Tavistock Centre. Joe is a member of the British Psychoanalytic Society. Regular listeners will recognise that Joe is a returning conversationalist. This is our third episode together. The first one on trauma in series one would make a good listening companion piece to this one. But today we talk about the difficult conversations around suicide for those who have or are contemplating it or those bereaved by suicide or otherwise affected by it. Both Joe and I bring personal experiences into the conversation. I want to caveat this episode by saying that neither Joe nor I are experts on this subject, but I think what we have to say is relevant and may help you open up those difficult conversations for yourself. If you'd like to listen to this podcast ad-free and before it goes on general release, please consider becoming a patron from just £3 a month or you can give a one-off donation via Acast Supporter. Both links will be in the episode description. Jo, hello and welcome back to the podcast. I found myself really anxious before recording about what my opening question was going to be and normally I'm very decided about it and I think that there's something about the subject matter of suicide which does make people very anxious. It's almost like talking about it will bring it forward. How do you feel about it? Well, first of all, thank you very much for having me back, Annalisa. It's lovely to be talking to you again. And I think it's absolutely right what you say. I found myself feeling anxious about this conversation. And that's interesting because we've already had a couple of conversations talking about really difficult things. Mm. And I wonder whether what we're both picking up in this is that this is a topic that inevitably can make us feel uncertain, concerned that we might do damage, worried that something that we say might harm someone or make them feel worse. Yes, because I mean, I'm quite comfortable talking about death, for example, and I've done podcasts on death. I I talk about it quite openly, but there's something about this that's different. And I think what you said about being worried about causing harm 
is particularly important. I think also it kind of stops, or rather my question is, do you think it stops people voicing concerns if they f- if they have these feelings? And also then the other person that it might broach it with doesn't know what to say. I, I think that's probably right. And I guess I also want to add something else in here and something that you and I have talked a little bit about. I think that there is an inevitability that we feel that suicide is something that we just don't understand. We don't understand what goes on in other people's minds that can lead to that kind of state and we don't understand what might end up making them act in that way. And one of the terrible things that people are left with when they've lost someone to suicide is trying to make sense of something that feels so difficult to understand. And I'm not saying that doesn't mean we might not have ideas and have some sort of thoughts about these things, but it is also something that just feels out of the realm of our ordinary way of thinking. And it's surprising, really, because I found a figure the other day that said something like one in 20 people make an attempt at some point in their lives to kill themselves. And I was astonished and disturbed by that figure and I thought it was worth us just kind of holding that as a thought this is actually something that you know one in 20 of us act on what does that say in terms of how many of us actually have suicidal thoughts at some point in our lives well I was going to say if if one in 20 act on it exactly that how many people think about it I mean and that's really hard to quantify because no one's ever asked me for example in an official survey so Mm. I don't know I mean do we think most people have some thought of it I know some people who say they never have but they also tend to be the people who get very closed when the subject comes up Mm. and I wonder if it's just too terrifying for them to go there I, I wonder too and I guess that's part of why I sort of was saying earlier that It is difficult when we can never truly understand what's going on in someone else's mind. Of course, you know, my professions of uh, psychiatry and psychoanalysis, we get lots of theories about what goes on. But I also found myself feeling anxious about coming into this space today because this is not an area that I feel like I'm a, in quotation marks, expert And there's probably a lot of other people who might have a lot more to say about the theories around suicide. But I think part of why we ended up coming together for this conversation is because there is also something in the personal experiences that perhaps we can bring. And I thought that that might be a really helpful way to be able to open this topic up with other people who might feel the kind of fear and anxiety that we're talking about. Yeah, it's whether we want to talk about those personal experiences. I, I find it quite difficult to. Do you feel able to? Yeah, I, I've thought long and hard about this. And of course, it's not a usual thing for a therapist to come forward with their own experience. But I also think that there is something about broaching these topics that can feel taboo in some way. Mm. That is a really important part of what I think your podcasts are about, opening up and talking about things that are difficult. 
So I guess that one of the things that I felt might be important for me to bring to this space is to say that I had a family member, my elder sister in 2012, uh, died through suicide. And it has given me a great deal to think about over that now long period of time since that occurred in terms of trying to understand what happened with her and to understand something of my own grief response. And I'm not going to tell her story because that's not mine to tell and I'm not going to sort of talk too much about our background because I also don't think that's where we should be in this podcast. But I, I did think that there was something about being able to talk about this openly that might be helpful to other people, both who think about their own suicide, but also those who've been bereaved in this way. Mm. Some of the letters I get from people who have been bereaved in that way ask me a question I can't answer, which is, why did they do it? Was that a question you asked yourself after your sister died? Yes, and I think it's a, it's such a complicated question because I think that one way to look at what happens after a, a bereavement by suicide is that it's an unfinished conversation. Mm. Yeah, only around 20% of people leave notes. So quite often there isn't that kind of final explanation or understanding. My sister had had some email contact with me in the couple of days beforehand. So I had some thoughts about why this had happened. But I think that it is part of what we get left with that we don't know that we have to sort of struggle with that understandable human wish to make meaning of something that feels so shocking and terrible and impossible to understand. And I think that's part of the process of grieving. And I found that there was a, a real sense of people wanting to I don't know, kind of jump in and have an explanation. And I wonder whether that links a little bit to what you were saying about sort of the closing down that you can find in some people. Mm. So one really common thing that people would immediately sort of ask me about if I had let them know that this is what had happened is, oh, how long had she been depressed for? Or you know, had, had she been in mental health treatment for very long? as though that could kind of put this into a box and we could then know this is what's happened. It's not going to happen to me because I'm not depressed. It's not going to happen to my loved ones because they're not in the mental health system. And it sort of, I think, allows people to move away quickly from something which otherwise can feel too disturbing to have to think about. Well, I think whenever something happens that we find obsessing or disturbing... I always kind of almost see it as we put a tracing paper of our own lives over that person's life and we look for the the points of connection, the differences, because we don't want it to happen to us. So, you know, they maybe wanted to ask you how long she'd been depressed or what her background was so they could reassure themselves that they or their loved ones didn't have that background. You know, in the same way when terrible crime happens, 
I find myself looking at where people live and I think, mm. well, they live there. I don't live there. I never go there. That's not going to yeah. happen to me. And yeah. it's, it's a way of, like you said, of distancing yourself from this really difficult thing and not looking. And I guess that's quite normal, really, because I suppose what else, what else could people do or say? I think that's a really good question. And, you know, I, I think that there is something so difficult for people anyway around bereavement. And I think it's been really interesting in the last few years seeing that there has been a lot more discussion in social media and, and in the media in general about how do you support someone after a bereavement. But people often do shy away and get sort of a bit frightened about saying the wrong thing. And then I think that one of the things that happens with suicide is that we still get caught up with the the shame and the stigma that was attached to it, you know, for many years in the past. I mean, even the vocabulary that gets used, there's still a need quite often to check in with people about not using the terms committed suicide mm. because of that connotation that somehow it's still a crime. So one of the things that I think that often ends up happening is that people shy away from saying anything because they feel somehow this is, you know, something that sort of is going to be too shameful or, or uncomfortable in some way to talk about. And that it will upset the other person too much. Whereas one of the things I found is that a straightforward response of I'm sorry for your loss or a kind of checking in with how you're doing. I think there's something about a kind of acknowledgement that this is a loss and it's a loss that has complications and that you need people to approach you with an open heart, not in that closed down state that you were saying that's full of fear. I mean, I think people are, they find it hard enough to talk about death. I'm at the risk of a really stupid question, but nevertheless, when I feel I need to ask, what is it about suicide that makes it so much harder than, shall we say, a, a different type of death? Mm. I think it's a great question and I, I, I'm not sure I can fully answer that. I, I suppose I think that one thing is that link to how suicide used to be treated. I mean, let's remember that this, this used to be attempts would lead to people being imprisoned and deaths by suicide would mean that people would be buried without the usual rights often outside the the churchyard it was considered a terrible shameful thing to happen to a family i also think that there is something around about that kind of thing that we were talking about earlier of, of almost being tainted by if you get too close to this will this end up affecting me and my family too mm. so people kind of move back for that I think the other big thing is around guilt. I, I think that because we often don't know what's happened, there can be a kind of floating sense around that can move between different people of, well, who's to blame? Mm. And who's to blame for this person, first of all, being in this state? And who's to blame 
for allowing it to happen. And of course, you know, as a, a clinician who works in the NHS, I've seen this acted out in institutions and in structures for many years, the whole notion of a, a risk assessment for someone who might be having suicidal thoughts carries with it a, a certain idea that somehow we can be responsible for stopping someone else from killing themselves. It's a big thing to be trying to help someone who's in a suicidal state, but to feel that you're responsible for stopping them acting on those thoughts is another thing entirely. So it brings up a whole kind of culture of attack and blame and guilt. And of course, somewhere in there, I think we've also got to talk about rage because the act of suicide is inevitably born out of despair and desperation. But there's also a, a kind of requirement that there has to be something aggressive that is turned towards the body in order mm. to be able to overcome our usual instincts to preserve our own lives. I mean, that's a, one of the most basic fundamental instincts we have. So I think the question around of anger as well is also one that makes it very difficult for people to be able to approach this topic. I mean, I remember a friend of mine who completed suicide and I wrote to her daughter to say how sorry I was. And she was the most philosophical person I think I'd ever come across in that situation. And she said, thank you so much, but we always knew she would do it. I, I was quite struck by that really. There was a certain acceptance, which I don't normally see in the letters I get, but then people write to me with, with their problems. So I guess they do. I mean, a lot of them ask the why as if that would make them feel better. And maybe the person who's completed suicide doesn't know themselves why they did it. I think that's absolutely right. And I think that's part of what the difficulty often is about that unfinished conversation that wish to know why, but I guess there's also sort of something in there about how do you understand and make meaning in a way that gives you a story in your mind about what has happened between us. And quite often, and this is certainly something that I felt personally, what you're left with is feeling like you're doing the work of holding those emotions and having to kind of bear them and understand them because your loved one wasn't able to do that. So I felt that my sister gave me something of her own confusion and distress and despair and rage and then I had to work to try and hold those myself and find a way to bear them until they felt less unbearable. And does that did that make you feel angry? It's funny there. I mean, I think, I mean, maybe the first thing to say is that I felt, first of all, numb. I think that's something about the shocking, sudden nature of it. Even if, like, in, in that description you were giving earlier, there can be a sort of idea that this was bound to happen at some point, which I don't think was really there with my sister, but there was also a kind of not fully surprised Hmm. But there's still the shock of the moment. And, you know, in all of my work in all these years in trauma, there is 
a recognition that when something happens that's so violent and unexpected and overwhelming, it is often in that sort of initial period that we can't take it in. We're just full of confusion and, and feeling overwhelmed. And then I think the anger took a long time. It it was almost like it was too dangerous to her memory to get angry, first of all. And, I mean, I guess I also want to say, and I, I'm going to keep saying this in this conversation, this is my personal experience, and some people might have very different experiences because that's what we also know about bereavement, don't we? Mm. It's a, a, an individual journey. And for me, anger took some time. It kind of came once I felt I'd been able to express something of the unbearable sadness and pain of losing her. And even that took a while because I felt in the initial weeks, actually what I needed to do was kind of get on with life. I felt like I was holding on to my normal structures of work and family and you know the kind of routine as a way of holding myself together and we'd had a, a family holiday planned you know, before this had happened with my sister and that was in about two months afterwards and it wasn't until that holiday that I felt I was strong enough to stop and be able to let myself grieve and that I'd been held enough and I often felt of it as a kind of containment of being able to get on with my life and reassure myself that I was still in my life even though this terrible thing had happened before I could then allow myself to really feel some of that despair and and, and sadness but the anger came later for me. Mm. I remember a reader wrote to me once and said that her husband had killed himself and she was just so angry and she didn't feel able to express that because what she said was you know he's left me with three kids and mm -hmm. all of this there was no warning and and I really felt for her I mean mm -hmm. she said it's the most selfish thing he's ever done and I thought that was really honest of her to say that Mm -hmm. It's a letter that really stayed with me about just how angry she was. She said, everyone's expecting me to be grieving, but all I feel is anger, which I guess is part of grieving. But she was, it was tangible how she felt left to cope. I mean, what you said earlier really stuck with me, which is the, a lot of the work you felt your sister, you were doing a lot of the work for her. I don't think it's exactly what you said, but, and I, I got that very much from this woman in quite a practical sense though because he'd left her with, you know, everything, bills to pay. And it was just, I felt so sad for her because not only she lost her husband, but she felt that her grief wasn't authentic because what she wanted to do was scream and say all these negative things about him. But of course she couldn't because everyone was saying, you know, what a tragedy, it's really sad. All those things are true. Mm. And that's not uncommon when I get letters from people whose relatives have completed suicide. And I guess, what could we say to them? See, I think that you've touched on something really important in that and her description of somehow being made to feel that her anger wasn't part of grief mm. is a problem. And 
I do feel like we have to work on how we as a society view what grief is and for me it includes the pain, the despair, the sadness, the guilt, the rage, the shame, all of those feelings are a part of the process of working through any loss and it's almost as though that anger can get invalidated by somehow being made to feel that this is not what you're meant to be feeling and then that's going to just stir up even more anger because mm. somehow then you don't have the space for it and for me that's sort of almost a repetition of what it feels like she was describing that she had this sudden kind of shutting down of her life as it was because of the loss of her husband and then she gets a shutting down of her grief in this this is not how you're meant to feel kind of idea. And so I, I kind of think we need to start with a, a notion that we don't know what this person's grief process is going to be, but whatever it is they're feeling is valid. And that if we're going to stand by them, that they need to be able to feel that they have the space to do it in the way they want. So one of the things that I found really interesting in my experience is I had had family bereavements before, but, you know, they had sort of, they'd not been of this kind of calibre. And I'd learnt so much about theory of grief in becoming a psychoanalyst. And I'd worked with many traumatised people where the central work is often around grief. But what I learnt personally when my sister died was that I had to find my own way. And I think to a lot of people what I did of going straight back to work and actually I didn't end up going to the funeral because it was in Australia and I felt that to go on that plane and be so far away from the things that held me together would be my undoing. So I made choices about how I did things and I think I also had learnt, you know, that we really want to help people stay with their feelings but actually for me in the personal learning I realised that we also have to help people know that it is okay to get away from those feelings too that grief requires you to move backwards and forwards and towards it and away from it and to find a distance that's right at that particular moment for you with how you're feeling. And and no one had ever really told me that this is what it was like. And I think there were times that I felt guilty that I wasn't doing it right, just like the reader that you know, you're know you describing who felt angry because people were telling her or she was made to feel she shouldn't be angry. I think that one of the best ways that we can support people is to help them feel that what they're feeling is valid and reasonable and we're there with them. You know, I keep coming back to this thing of how is normal, in inverted commas, grief different to suicide grief? And I suppose there's something about 
which this woman's letter illustrated so powerfully was that we all feel when somebody dies they leave us but he had chosen to leave and I suppose there is that thing with suicide that we feel that we weren't enough for them there was nothing we could do and that leaves us feeling powerless Mm. and that's that's not a great thing to feel is it no and I think you're capturing something really important in this I think that one of the things that I've seen in my work is that bereavement by suicide is often a traumatic bereavement Mm. it is something that is so full of that powerlessness feeling and helplessness and being overwhelmed and all of the things that you and I have talked about before in terms of what trauma is that it becomes a, a a wound that is complicated by the the traumatic aspect of the bereavement so you've got all of the ordinary grief you've got all of the shame and stigma and the sort of disenfranchised part of grieving that can often be a part of the suicidal grief and then you've also got this potential for trauma and there was a study I was looking at the other day that said you know that they, they, were, they looked at adults who had sought counselling after suicide bereavement and around 75% met the criteria for post-traumatic stress disorder mm. even years after the event. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say it sounds like it could be a traumatic event because the moment I said the, the word powerless, I remembered what we'd spoken about before, which yeah. is that can be one of the hallmarks I also wanted to go back to what you were saying about you know sometimes it's okay to leave these difficult feelings for a while I remember you said that to me once in a totally different conversation we were having and I've remembered that because sometimes when something not very good is going on and I have what I think of as pockets of happiness or okayness Mm -hmm. and I think you know it's really right to have those feelings you don't have to be wringing your hands and crying all the time but I think also again (laughs) guilt is guilt is such a crap emotion I'd love to know where you know it's like I wish we could eradicate it because it doesn't really seem to help at all apart from making people feel crap about themselves (laughs) but it makes you feel guilty if you're not and I think that's one of the things I have learnt about grief is that you do go in and out I mean there was that thing that you go through these stages which I never really took on board and was never my experience of grief. And mm. I think it's perfectly okay to just sometimes not think about the terrible thing. And I think maybe actually quite healthy to give yourself a little bit of a holiday from feeling tortured and wretched or whatever it is you feel. I, I would say not just a quite a good thing. I would say it's an essential thing. And I do think you're right. There's a lot of work done there that suggests that that notion of the stages of grief was too artificial and didn't really fit with what we're talking about of something much more dynamic and individual but I also want to go back to guilt and I loved the way that you just described it as a crappy emotion because I I think that there's something important that we also need to understand about guilt in a, a psychoanalytic way we often talk about there being two different types of guilt there's the what much more what we call kind of persecutory guilt, the guilt mm-hmm. that makes us feel really under attack and and is often the kind of guilt that one might feel early on after this kind of bereavement, a sort of 
you know, it's all your fault, you've done it all wrong and this you're to blame and all of those terrible things. And you're right, that's really crappy and it's not helpful and it actually can often be one of the ways that the rage that people feel that they can't bear to express outwards, they end up turning on themselves mm. in that kind of attack. But there is another kind of guilt and... I think this is one that's important to kind of think about because this is often more about a a recognition that, okay, you know, there might be things that we feel regret for and that we feel great sadness that we didn't do something differently or that things weren't different or that we wished we'd been able to make something, you know, better. And I think that guilt can be channeled into some really helpful altruistic ways of working through the mourning process and I think we often see this when people have had traumatic bereavements often you know by homicide but I think also you know any kind of unexpected and and violent uh, bereavement you see this way in which people end up setting up charities or wanting to change laws about things or wanting to help others in this particular area and I think that's how they channel their their guilt in a way that actually feels a part of the meaning making that is also what they're trying to do in terms of the the narrative of what's happened in their lives and there's a lot of good evidence that altruism and altruistic acts are part of what can be very protective and supportive for people after a bereavement and, and particularly a traumatic one. So guilt is propellant rather than self-flagellation? Yes, absolutely. But, you know, it's it's a really tricky one to kind of work out, isn't it? And I think that what we started to talk about there in terms of that more persecutory guilt is often the really dangerous place that people can be left in. So the, the guilt makes them feel that it's their fault and they're to blame. And if there's a lot of shame around, then they can feel no one understands this and it's because I'm such a terrible person that this has happened and they can feel very isolated and that's an awful combination and I think we have to acknowledge that this is part of why the risk of suicide for people who've been bereaved by suicide is significantly increased. There's a a one in ten risk of making a suicide attempt after you've had a bereavement by suicide. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. We've talked about how you might feel if someone you love kills themselves and you mentioned that I think it was 75% of them had the markers for PTSD. Yeah. I mean, we, you and I did a, a trauma podcast which people, you know... M- will find helpful I think but just to anyone listening who thinks you know I, I did find that really traumatic I mean what could we say to them we've covered some of the things which is I think to really get in touch with how you really feel because otherwise they are just festering but what might people who are listening who think I'm really traumatized by what happened to my partner child whoever member of the family or friend what might we say to them that they could think about? Well, this is the, the big question, isn't it? And I suppose the, the first thing that we are already trying to say is that it, it is understandable that whatever you're feeling, you're feeling it, and it is okay to be feeling it. And I guess what I often end up talking about in these kinds of spaces is that the best thing that we can try and do is to reach out to be with someone else and ideally someone who we feel safe with that we have a connection with but if there isn't someone like that around there are a lot of other spaces that one can reach out to whether that's helplines or support groups or more formal you know accessing care within different mental health systems but it's the reaching out because There is so much evidence now that in order to be able to process something that is so unbearable and potentially traumatic, you often need someone else's mind to help you do that. Mm. And that's not necessarily having to talk through the detail of what's happened or how you're feeling, but to feel that someone is open and available to where you are at that time. Now, I also think that we touched on something earlier that is worth talking about, and that's that if someone is feeling overwhelmed by how they're feeling after this kind of bereavement and maybe feeling at risk themselves, 
there is also something important about trying to kind of just take yourself away from those feelings, a kind of buy a bit of distraction time. Sometimes this can get caricatured a bit and I, I do feel it's important to really acknowledge that. So one might look at some of the lists that are out there on the internet. I think uh, the Samaritans, Mind, uh, various kind of organisations, the NHS have got sort of, you know, if you're feeling suicidal, here are some ideas. And they talk about sort of various distractions, you know. One of the ones that I often hear that my patients sort of can caricature a bit is, you know, go and take a warm bath. And I think that it can be heard as a dismissal of how awful you're feeling. Mm. But I think that what I would take up is what I was describing before, that I felt I needed to be busy for a while, to be in my ordinary life, to have my structure and to be distracted before I felt ready to go to the feelings. And I think that's what people are often talking about in these lists of how do you find a way to kind of help yourself at these moments. And sometimes that's also uh, around just kind of getting it back into your body and noticing that that's what you're feeling in order to be able to, to decide what you need to do about it. So some of those lists will include things like giving yourself a bit of space to do some deep breathing or do some simple grounding exercises, things like uh, noticing your feet flat on the floor or getting a cold drink and noticing what that feels like, a kind of mindfulness mm. that can get you back in your body and then you can notice what you're feeling and then make a decision about what you feel is best for you at that moment. And it might be reaching out to connect, it might be distracting, or it might be staying with it for a while. But I think the emphasis is on working out what feels right for you. Don't sort of feel like you've got to follow a list, but try and listen to yourself and see what you need. And I think that then gets reflected in when you're trying to support someone in this place, being open to finding out where are they and what do they need? Not feeling like you've got to give advice or you've got to say something positive or, you know, cheer them up because all of those things will probably make them feel worse. But just to be open and find out you know, what's going on, what, what, what can I do to help? If you're not sure, that's fine. I can just be here and let's try and discover it together. And And that kind of kindness and compassion and curiosity is the the place that we need to be for ourselves and that we strive to be for others yes i think we have uh, a need to fix things <laughs> and also i have this feeling with with myself when i have difficult feelings people want to make me feel better mm. but sometimes i need to feel a bit worse i.e i need to go down there and discover how i feel yeah. Before and I feel better. You know, it's, it's a, such a rubbish, facile analogy. <laughs> but it's no. a bit like you have to go and clear out the cupboard and get out the mould. You have to face that to make that cupboard really shiny and gorgeous. So when you open it, you think everything's in order. But I see that a lot, which is why I'm quite careful who I speak to about mm. certain things. Because, you know, I'm so lucky in the people I speak to with work that they do let me explore it. But most people just 
they just want to fix it and I understand that but that's not what we always need sometimes we need someone to sit there with us when we kind of go to those dark corners I think that's absolutely right and I really like the way you put it it reminds me I have a a friend uh, who I do a regular walk with and we have developed this idea that we check with each other is this something that we should try and fix or is this something that you're just wanting me to listen to Mm. And I think it's so important because if people jump in with the fixing when what you really need is, as you're saying, just be here with me while I try and get down into the depths of this. If they fix it or attempt to, I think the message is shut it down. I can't bear to know about it, so let's just fix it. And that's often what isolates people more than anything, that feeling that someone else isn't available to know that these are the terrible difficult awful things that you're trying to work out well I suppose they're scared of them I mean what I Mm. sometimes say to people who I know are struggling with something is I say what's the pervading emotion today because I appreciate that it might change sometimes that might be I really feel okay Joe, we've talked a lot about how someone might feel if a loved one completes suicide. And I wanted to talk now about how anyone listening who might be having those very difficult feelings. Mm. I have had them when I was a teenager, so I feel quite sort of comfortably uncomfortable talking about it. I remember very clearly how I felt. But also I do get people, often children, writing to me and they either say they feel they feel suicidal or someone they know does and they're always they're not always they tend to be at the cusp of puberty sort of 12 13 and what I say to them I always reply to children who write to me and I say to them talk to someone and Mm. but it depends what they say I mean I, I I sometimes reply and say I felt like this too and I'm not I suppose I'm not scared of talking to them A lot of parents or guardians or whoever you are, if a child comes to you and says they feel like this, and obviously we have to carry up, neither of us are suicide experts, Mm. it can make you very afraid. And what I do, and in your opinion, tell me if this is wrong, is I try and just ask them how they feel, how long they've been feeling like that. I name it, I say, do you feel suicidal if they haven't already? I also ask them if they have any plans to actually carry it through but I try and stay really calm and mm. let them talk and that's what I try and do also in my letters if they want to write back to me. Look, I think there's so much in what you've just said and the first thing is uh, I want to thank you for acknowledging that you had those feelings too because I think this is part of what you and I are both trying to do here which is to say it's okay the more we talk about this stuff the better the more that we acknowledge and as you're describing we are curious and engaged in what people are telling us about their distress and I think you also said something really important which links with what we were just describing there is something about trying to be in a particular state of mind to be able to receive this information and Of course, there's going to be anxiety. That's where we started in this podcast, that we feel anxious about talking about this and anxious that there might be harm done. 
But all of the evidence actually suggests that asking someone about suicide does not increase their risk, it actually reduces it. That the more that we talk and connect about it, the better. And that requires us, if we are doing the asking, to be properly present and willing to hear this difficult situation and the pain and distress that someone might be feeling and not jump to that fixing place, but being able to be open. And yes, neither of us are experts, but you sound to me like you've heard an awful lot of stories and people asking you for help. And in my day-to-day work, most people that I work with have suicidal feelings, sometimes chronically and sometimes they come and go. And there was a bit of a anxiety that I had about the idea of talking about this today in terms of saying I've been bereaved by suicide because I worried that that might make the people I work with, if they happen to listen to this, feel I can't talk to her then because it might be too much for her. And I guess there's something about what you were describing that is a a particular stance that we're trying to take regardless of our own histories, which is I'm here and I'm listening and tell me what's going on. And in some ways that's very straightforward and practical, isn't it? It's just be there, be open, put your phone down, don't be distracted by anything else. Be available. Don't come to it so full of anxiety that you want to shut it down before you even start talking about it. Yeah, you see, my anxiety, which is totally against (laughs) what we've been talking about, is I'm really scared that if my children know I felt like that, that they will be tempted to feel like that. Logically, I know that doesn't make sense. But that's my fear, which, you know, however much I profess to want to talk about these things is still kind of there and real but Mm. I do remember how I felt which was I felt I had nowhere to go with my feelings and I I didn't want to die I just didn't want to live like that anymore and I didn't know how to get out of it and on one particular day when I had planned to do it I remember writing a list of things I had to do first. One of them was washing the kitchen floor. (laughs) Ever the good child. But then I got a letter offering me a job. And just as I was writing my suicide note, which was probably really dramatic, and it just thought, I thought, oh, this is a sign I'm meant to be here. And there was twice in my adolescence I felt very strongly suicidal, but I really remember how I felt. And what was what I'm so grateful about, and what I sometimes share with children, if it's appropriate, is that I'm so glad I didn't do that. Mm. And because I would not have lived this life. And, but I didn't want to, I just, I was desperate. And I suppose sometimes I think, what would have helped me? And mm. what would have helped me, I suppose, is someone saying to me, what can I do? Or, I don't know, but you know, just something to kind of help me. I wasn't really taught how to process my emotions. And I just, but I will just just remember the feeling of just, I don't know what to do anymore. And so Mm. the answer is just not be here anymore, even though that's not really what I wanted. Yeah, and I'm really sorry that you felt like that. And it makes me think just how hard adolescence is. 
It's so hard. It really <laughs> is. And I think that, that that description you give of of wanting to escape is something that I hear a lot. You know, that what I'm feeling is unbearable. And then the thought of suicide becomes, and this is how I can escape. And I think it kind of gets linked up with fantasies that may be more or less conscious around an idea that I can get out of here by killing off this body, but somehow I'll still go on. So there's also a kind of split that ends up happening that the body doesn't quite feel like it's part of the person anymore, that they can Mm. go on, and that can get linked up with all the religious ideas too. But I think it's part of this kind of the escape when there's no other way out. And I thought you said something really important in there about not being taught how to process feelings. Because I think this is one of the issues around adolescence. And it's also something that I often see with trauma patients, which is that the more that we can process, I think is a good word, but I guess I would start with kind of be aware of our emotions to be able to name them, to work out, okay, how long can I sit with this and then when do I need to do something about it, but also to work out what the doings might be. Because quite often in adolescence and also when people have been very traumatised, the sort of sense that something awful is going on inside is almost immediately responded to by, I have to get rid of it. And sometimes that can end up being, so I've got to get rid of myself. Or it might be connected at times to, so I have to self-harm myself in some way as a way of acting to get rid of this. Or I have to use alcohol or drugs or anything that kind of allows you to get away from the feeling. And I don't think that we have in our society been taught well enough about how to notice these feelings be able to sort of recognize them in our bodies, to name them, to have different ways of managing what to do with them. And I often think that the best way of managing feelings is through relationships, connecting with others, talking them through. The more we give words to feelings, the more containable they are. And I think this is all really linked, particularly for adolescents who are often in so many different emotional storms that they don't feel like they can do that, that they can find words to talk about what they're feeling instead of having to act on it. Yes, I think that's so true. And also what I try and communicate is that suicide is a permanent solution to what's often a temporary position or problem or situation. I don't want to make light of what anyone might be going through. But I also think, and I want to touch a little bit on this because I think it's important, if your child does say that they feel suicidal, is to actually find out what they mean by that. And because I had quite a sort of terrifying conversation with a mum once whose child took an overdose and she'd said that she'd heard about children taking overdoses but she didn't really know what it meant. She didn't realise it could actually lead to death. And so she took an overdose of tablets that she found. Luckily, they weren't what could have really damaged her. She was very ill. But I think, as with any subject, but especially something like this, really find out what they mean and don't presume because they may have heard the word and they may think it's something else. And 
what I try and impart again if it's appropriate is that suicide if it's if one is successful is permanent there's no going back from it it's not a temporary fix it's a permanent fix and so just make sure you know that you're both talking about the same thing and don't presume would you think that's sensible oh I think it's incredibly sensible and I I think it's kind of trying to open something up rather than close it down of let's find out what 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 do these words mean what what are you describing what what are you what's going on inside of you what have you done what are you wanting to do the more that we can open up these conversations the better I was thinking there is something isn't there about that push for action and that little fragment you gave which I thought was really actually touching and 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 sad as well as that if you hadn't taken the time to clean the kitchen floor, that you could have done something that might have changed where we are now. We wouldn't mm. be sitting here talking. To be absolutely accurate, I don't think I did clean the kitchen floor. <laughs> it was on my it was on my list of things to do. Whether I did it or not, I don't remember. But I remember me I remember making a list and on the list of things to do before I killed myself was clean the kitchen floor. But if that letter hadn't arrived, I don't know what we're, if we'd be here. And that would be a damn shame. It would be a terrible, terrible shame. But I think that there was a life-affirming bit of you that made the list, first of all, and created a space. And within that space, something happened to change how you felt. And I think that's part of what you're describing that others can do for people who are feeling suicidal of create a space where action isn't necessary it's possible to be able to just hold where you are and see what might take you in a different direction there's some very painful research around interviewing people who have done things violent attempted suicide and in the moment in which they've done that act there has been, for a significant number of them, a thought, I don't want to do this. And so that conflict that is inside is something that we need to create spaces to help people know that there is also that life force inside of them and that potential for other options to change the story or the way that you're feeling or what's going on for you. If you can just create a bit of time and space usually with another person to help that happen. So what might you have said to me in that moment that might help others who find themselves in a similar situation, i.e. feeling like they want to end it? So I think the first thing I would say is that there is no script because as soon as you start a script, you're in a place in which you're trying to kind of step back. So I guess I would want to find a, a sort of moment where you and I could talk and I would want to just ask you, where are you? What's going on? What are you feeling? Do you feel able to talk to me? Because it's not about what I can say to stop you or make you feel better or change things. It's about creating a space for you to explore what's going on and to put that into words and to see whether together we might come up with some ideas. So when I think back to that time, I have 
these really powerful feelings and one by one they all got jammed down mm. and so I don't know that I even knew what to say I just mm. felt like a kind of is it a powder keg those things that kind mm. of explode that's how I felt and I think that if someone I wouldn't even know how to start talking and I think you know now several years on and lots of therapy later I'm able to look at that but at the time I couldn't and I'm thinking that someone that feels like that often they're not talking to people so what might they say to themselves well you know I also think that there is something about they might not be talking to people but they might need to know that people are available and if you were feeling in that power keg state and I'm not presuming to know you know anything about what was going on for you in detail in your life but it does suggest that it felt like there weren't people who could help you you know get rid of some of that pressure and so I think for others to know that to be available and people might not know how to say it but I would say to the person if they don't feel able to talk to still try and reach out to be with others to find safe places to be you know this is often something that we talk about in terms of how to kind of manage a sudden increase in those suicidal feelings that many of the people I work with carry all the time, that if you're feeling in danger, find someone that you can just be with. You might not even have to talk with, but to just feel this is a safe person who I can just relax with for a while and distract myself until I see what might happen next. And I think that's part of why I really appreciate your story because it also says something about in the moment of feeling so terrible, you can feel like time has stopped and you're never, ever going to get out of this terrible state of mind. But in your creating the list and then getting that letter, time started up again. And the idea that at some point in your life you were going to feel differently came into being because of that letter. And if there are ways that people can kind of get in touch with that, that time hasn't stood still, you're not going to be in this place forever, that things can be different. And it might just be a matter of thinking about, well, what do I need for the next five minutes that might help me just to manage right now? Because once time has moved on, it might feel different. That's so true, because I remember how it it was so hard to believe I wouldn't always feel like that. And so the thought of always feeling like that was quite understandably unbearable. You know, I hadn't really learnt that life is about (laughs) different things, that you're, you're quite in the moment in many ways. I mean, the way I try and explain life to my children now, I use lots of visual imagery and they laugh at me. But one of them is I say that it's like a train and we're all on the train, but we're all looking out of different windows. So our viewpoint is different, but also sometimes we go through the most awful barren landscape and we think we'll be there forever. And then we go through something that's utterly beautiful and the train trundles on, but nothing ever stays the same. Mm-hmm. And I think I hadn't learned that. No one had taught me and I didn't know that. Funny enough, it reminds me a little bit of when you first have children, you just think this is it forever. I'm <laughs> never gonna sleep again. I'm never gonna go out again. And of course they change and it's so obvious but in that moment you're so stuck that you can't think about that
I mentioned that some of the letters I get are from often children, sometimes adults, who know someone who feels suicidal. And what I always try and explain to them, depending on the circumstances, is, you know, talk to an adult or whatever, but the overriding message is you are not responsible Mm. for that other person. And I think that's so important. I have personal experience of this too, which I can't talk about. But of someone constantly telling me they felt suicidal. And in the end, I had to say, I can't help you anymore. That was such a difficult conversation. Mm. But I literally felt like I was being drowned. And I remember thinking, if they kill themselves, it's my fault. And they didn't, and they haven't. And But that day, I did break free, because I thought, I can't... I, ha- I felt held hostage. What can we say to someone who... It may, they may have tried all the things we've said about you know giving space but ultimately that person keeps saying I feel suicidal well I mean first of all I'm really sorry you went through that because it sounds like such an awful situation to be in and I, I do think it is a real problem when we end up feeling responsible for someone else's well-being or for their safety and I, I'm really pleased you brought it up because I think it's something we've got to emphasise in this podcast. We cannot take responsibility for other people's lives. We can absolutely be there and try and support them if that's what's helpful to them. But I think what you're describing is a kind of situation where you end up feeling something of that traumatized state of helpless and overwhelmed and being asked to manage something that you're actually powerless to do anything about and I kind of wonder whether that was part of maybe at a more unconscious level of what was getting communicated to you that something of that experience of feeling I'm in this terrible place and I can't do anything about it and and at the same time I feel blamed and and persecuted by it and there's no escape and I wonder whether those were the kind of feelings that were getting pushed around there and of course I have no idea and that's just a supposition and I I guess there's something about being in that place that means that you've got to also be really careful about looking after yourself in any of these because your own capacity to be able to regulate yourself to be able to attend to your well-being to be able to get on with your own life also has to come into this equation and if something is going on where you are being pulled into someone else's state and they are relying on you to somehow save them or rescue them in some way then I, I think that that's something that really needs to be thought about and addressed probably with someone else yes that's good advice and I just want to reiterate that you're not responsible for someone else's decisions or behavior Joe, thank you so much and for sharing such a personal story I'm so sorry about what happened to you and your sister it's a very difficult subject but I'm sure listeners will find it really really helpful thank you very much thank you Annalisa Thank you so much to Dr Joe Stubley. There were a few things I wanted to say in rounding up this episode. Please don't be afraid of having these difficult conversations, either if you feel suicidal or someone you know does. Try to stay calm 
if you're a parent or adult and a child comes to you with suicidal feelings. As Joe says, create a space. Don't be afraid to say the word suicide or ask them if they've made any plans to hurt themselves. If children know they can come to you with these difficult feelings and you can stay calm, you not only help them process their emotions and regulate them, but they know that if there's a next time, they can come to you. And don't take it personally and don't make it personal. If you have suicidal feelings, help is available and you are worthy of that help. If you don't feel you can talk to anyone you know, two organisations that can help are Papyrus and the Samaritans. Both have helplines and a wealth of information on their websites. I'll put all this in the episode description. The producer is Hester Kant. The music is by Toby Dunham and our artwork is by Lo Cole. If you'd like to read my column, it appears every Saturday in The Guardian Saturday magazine. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, this is Annalisa. I started doing this podcast because it's an idea I really believe in, so much so that I decided to put my money where my mouth is and self-fund the project. I really want to keep releasing this podcast for free, so if you enjoy this episode, a way you can help is to visit our ACAST supporter page and give what you can. You'll find the link in the episode description. Thank you.